Hi, this is Dr. J.P. Sanchez, president of Building the Next Generation of Academic Physicians, as well as editor of a new book entitled Succeeding in Academic Medicine, a Roadmap for Diverse Medical Students and Residents. I'm excited that we have Dr. Bonnie Simpson Mason here today with us for this podcast, um, who is co-author on one of the chapters entitled Financing an Academic Medicine Career. As you all know, we've decided to do this podcast series so you could get to know a little bit more about our co-author so that you can become inspired to start writing and publishing more, but also that you could come away with some of the nuggets from the chapter. So thank you. Thank you so much, Dr. Bonnie Simpson-Mason, for being a part of this. How are you today? I am outstanding. Thank you so much, Dr. Sanchez, for inviting me to speak. Excellent. Um, so as we get started, maybe we can start with some of um, the roles that you have held, as well as some of your new roles. Absolutely. Um, well, I'm with you today um, as um, someone who trained in orthopedic surgery um, way back in the day. We won't say when. Uh, so as a board-certified orthopedic surgeon, I actually was one of those people who um, was unfortunate. Um, I was diagnosed with rheumatoid arthritis early on in my surgical career. So I was only able to operate um, while running a private practice for about five years. And so I retired in my early 30s. Um, from that point, um, I was a little concerned about uh, what my options were, but what I, what I had identified was that um, we needed more instructions for people like me as a woman, I'm African-American, I went to HBCUs, um, I wanted to become an orthopedic surgeon, but everybody told me because of those three attributes, they are attributes, that there was no way I was gonna be successful. So, um, Towards the end of my clinical career, I uh, founded a nonprofit organization called Nth Dimensions. Um, we are a 501c3 nonprofit, which has worked to increase diversity um, and representation in specialty fields of medicine, especially orthopedic surgery, um, now dermatology, radiology, and physical therapy. Um, and we've had a we've had crazy successful match rates of our students over the past 15 years in those fields. And uh, simultaneously, simultaneously, um, I founded Beyond the Exam Room, which is an educational firm to teach physicians about the business side of medicine. Because as I um, practiced in those first few years uh, in my private practice, I recognized I had not been prepared to run a business, a practice, a medical practice is a business. Um, so I've done that work most recently until this past uh, June. Um, I should say January until this past January, which was only about uh, three months ago. Um, and I, I accepted the position of Vice President of Diversity and Inclusion at the ACGME, the Accreditation Council for Graduate Medical Education. So um, I've, um, I'm still affiliated with my prior endeavors, always beholden to our scholars and learners, which is why it's been such a privilege to be co-author um, in one of the chapters in succeeding in academic medicine, but all of that to say, I'm happy to be here. Well, congratulations on your many successes. We are we are grateful and excited by this new position that you hold within ACGME. Um, you're an accomplished business person. You're an accomplished physician, academician. 
um, mother, uh, a, a mother of, of two, is that correct? Yeah. yeah. The Bear Cubs, yeah. <laughs> the Bear Cubs. And you mentioned uh, an alumnus of one of the HBCUs. It would probably be nice for the alumnus um, to hear which institution? That's plural. So I'm a graduate of Howard University undergrad. Um, I then went on to Morehouse School of Medicine for medical school. I did one year of an internship at UCLA in general surgery, but then I went back to Howard University to complete my orthopedic surgery residency. So I'm a proud multi-HBCU alum. Excellent, excellent. Thank you for sharing. So, you know, we've spoken quite a bit about writing and, and getting um, our community's narratives out there, as well as sharing our lived experiences. Why, why did you decide to contribute to the book, in particular, um, with a focus on this chapter, Financing an Academic Medicine Career? One of the things we know for sure, both you and I both know, is, is that the roadmaps for success are limited, especially for of diverse medical students and residents. And so to the extent we could start memorializing um, the historical paths that we've taken and that our predecessors have taken in order to find success, if we want to build um, an academic faculty that is diverse and we've already done that work, let's document it. Let's share the benefits of our knowledge our, our, and of our experiences, both pluses and minuses so that you know, our young people don't have to step in the same landmines and traps that we stepped in. Um, and it's also a call to us um, to be a little bit more transparent about some of the mistakes we've made, that we aren't perfect, and um, then to share the challenges that we face so that you know, we know um, the path won't be straight. So it's up to us to be able to say, listen guys, your path won't be straight, but that doesn't mean you can't be successful. We don't want you to be deterred the first time you hit a bump or the first time you encounter some resistance to your presence. So to that extent, if they know that and they've heard from us how to navigate these um, paths successfully, then that's only going to help us you know, build a, a larger cohort of folks who look like us in academia who can thereby inspire the next generation as well. Fantastic. So as, as we've also discussed, it could be difficult, right? It could be challenging to write. Um, can you share what was maybe um, the most difficult aspect about contributing to this chapter and how you overcame that challenge? Um. I think for those of us who are, um, who pride themselves in being really busy, it's hard to slow down long enough to write when uh, writing is not, um, you know, it's not my first, it's not the first task on my wish list. I'm, I'm an innovator. I like to discuss and create and build. Um, but for me, uh, sitting down and actually having to write um, was a little bit of a challenge, um, especially with, you know, all of the hats that I'm wearing. Um, one of the things I did to um, kind of jumpstart the actual drafting of my chapter was that I recorded myself speaking through the chapter, and then I got it transcribed. So certainly I um, created the first draft 
in more of a conversational format, but that still allowed me to edit, which, which for me was, is easier than, you know, just writing everything out word for word from the very beginning. So I had an outline, I talked through the content, uh, had it recorded and then had it transcribed. And I know that that, that uh, access to that um, voice transcription technology is actually an, an advantage that we have available to us now that wasn't available um, with such accuracy and efficiency um, as it is now. I mean, we didn't have that 10 years ago. I mean, we didn't have it really super fine-tuned even five years ago. So I did take advantage of some technology to um, help facilitate um, my contribution to the chapter. But I'll also say this, I was, I'm very passionate about you know, securing um, an academic position in a way that's smarter and not harder. And so those are some of the pearls that we shared in the chapter about how to go about um, securing that employed pos position, right, as a doctor, in a, in, a, in a world where we never really have had to look for a job in the traditional, in the traditional sense before. So what we wanted to do was demystify what that roadmap looked like um, so that um, we can you know, bring more people into the fold. Well, I appreciate that suggestion. It's, it's um, uh, what you shared about taping oneself and then transcribing is something that I've done quite a bit. Sometimes I'll just use my iPhone while running or while driving. I'll just record myself while driving and then I'll go back and, and jot those points down. So let's get to the nitty gritty of the chapter, right? Because there's a lot of misconceptions that, you, you know, academic medicine is not financially viable. Um, you can't build wealth. Um, you can't afford a life for yourself and the family by going into academic medicine. Can, can you share some of the key points within the chapter to sort of address those myths and misconceptions to put our listeners on track? I can think of two that, maybe three, that I'd like to share just right off the top of my head. Number one, this is not an endeavor that you should be pursuing on your own. I suggest and recommend, as we do in the chapter, that you surround yourself with mentors and advisors to help you navigate going from a five-figure salary in residency into a six-figure salary in academics, right? So this is, that's no small jump in your economic um, uh, station in life. Most of us are not prepared to, to manage that on our own, singly or solely, and most of us don't necessarily have the family background that can help to advise us um, on making that transition. So um, you want to make sure that while you're in training, you build your team, I call it your team of advisors, to help you navigate you know, the financial transition that you're going to make so that you can start very early making smart decisions with your finances that will put you in a place where you are financially sound even 10 years into, into your academic practice. And um, you don't have to wait until you're 40 or 50 to be financially secure, even if you have loans. So if you, um, if you, if we admit that, you know, we don't necessarily have time to understand fully um, all of the nuances of, you know, um, our tax, um, implications 
you know, savings options, retirement plans, loan elimination or debt elimination. You know, if we can partner with people to help us strategize around that, that's working smarter, not harder. Speaking to faculty members who've already transitioned into different academic positions who can serve as advisors for you, that's also smart. So, you know, not thinking that because I'm smart, I should be able to figure th that out or figure this path out. That's the harder way to go. I'm telling you that right now. Surrounding yourself with people who know more than you, where, where it really is an, an exercise in the scientific method, right? Where we gather data, right? We gather our own data in that scientific process, then we assess the data, then we draw the conclusion, right? It's, you're doing the same thing. You're drawing, you're, you're, you're collecting data from multiple trusted advisors, sources, and mentors, to help you assess it and make the best decisions for yourself. I call it informed decision-making, even when you're finding a job, right? So you, this isn't something you should be doing by yourself and without data and without information input. Informed decision-making applies outside of the exam room as well. So that's number one. Um, number two, giving yourself enough time to find that next best position for yourself is also critical. This is not something that you do in three months or six months. Um, I liken it to the fact that, you know, we applied for medical school positions um, as juniors in college, right? So we give our, we have 12 to 18 months lead time to prepare for that transition. Same thing for residency. When we start in our third year looking at programs, weighing different programs, setting up our sub-eyes, we have an 18-month lead time there as well. Same thing applies when you're looking for your first position. So if you're in internal medicine, you've got a three-year residency, a year and a half in, might feel a little early. No, it is paralleling what you've done before, taking the enough time to uh, find multiple options, research all of the details that we discussed in the book, in the chapter about those options, those academic position options, and then asking enough questions um, of, the, of the position and of your advisors to help you analyze the offers that you will get so that you can compare more than one offer. You have two or three employment options to consider that way you can compare apples to apples to apples and hopefully walk away having negotiated for the best academic position for, your, for yourself. The people who get in trouble are people who wait three to six months out to start looking for a position and somebody offers you a job and you're like, oh, they want me and I want to go ahead and I'll sign the contract right away. And they've not taken the time to do their due diligence, their research, collect their own data, assess it and draw their own conclusions. But because now we're desperate, we'll take the first thing that comes our way. So we don't want that to happen. And it doesn't allow us also time to build relationships. So, so those are two of the big things. I've forgotten number three because I got all charged up, Jay, Dr. <laughs> but um, at least we got those first two covered. But I would say those are two of the big things that um, I thought were extremely important coming from this chapter. Um, and, it is, it is when we are strategic and it is when we take enough time and we surround ourselves and we, and so that takes some humility 
to humble ourselves enough to say to our fellow physicians, maybe the, you know, the residents that just graduated and went through this process, hey, could you tell me about your experience? You know, what did you do well? What would you do differently? You know, I don't want to pretend like I have this figured out, right? And then talk to people about compensation so that we can minimize and start eliminating compensation gaps between men and women. And, you know, and then really, and I'll say it, steering, steering clear of the people who say, you don't need to worry about a contract or you don't need an attorney. That's old school. I'm going to tell you that right now. Why? Because, and this is what I put in my, my new book, doctors are in healthcare. Healthcare is a business. Therefore, doctors are in business. Even if you are in academics, the evolution of most academic centers now has a health, a health system running that academic center and that health system is a business. So we have to have to be aware of that moving forward. Well, that was excellent. Thank you for all those words of wisdom. Um, and, and let me piggyback on something that you said about a book. So, you know, the chapter in this book provides a snapshot of some of these concepts that you mentioned, like build that supportive team, come up with a reasonable timeline, know your worth. But as you mentioned, you're coming out with a more robust book. Can you give us an idea of the title, when um, that book might be dropped and how we can access your book? You know, that's very kind of you. I actually regretting even bringing that up because this is about our book succeeding. No, it's about no, no, no. It's about layering the information and supporting each other. And we want people to write, right? So please. Right. Yes. And we want them to secure a position where they will be able to write and fulfill the scholarly activities and works that they want to see written into their contracts. I mean, in particular, if someone wants to have a research lab or if somebody wants to make sure that they have fellows, these are all things that need to go into your contract, people. This needs to go into your academic contract. So that's what my book is about. It's called The Doctor's Ultimate Guide to Contracts and Negotiations. Um, it's called Make Power Moves and Get Paid. That's the marketing part of it. It is uh, coming out um, by the end of April, if not a little bit sooner, sooner, and it'll be on Amazon. So I'll be sure to let everyone in the Bing Gap um, family know. Um, and so we're excited about that work because that, that contract I found to be the linchpin for most physicians in our lives because we can be the smartest and best clinically, but when it comes to that the contract and negotiating for our needs and our wants and for the things that we value most, we won't speak up and do that because it's like a foreign language. So I spent an extensive amount of time talking about how we should reflect on who we are first how to analyze that contract in a way that's digestible, comparing parts of the contract to anatomical parts, and then coming up with some negotiation strategies so that we can learn to ask and walk away with a situation that works for both us and the employer. Well, I am so excited about your new book. Congratulations. We will definitely be taping another podcast, having you share the cover, right, as well as some of the content. And you and, and there's another um, Bingap colleague that you know, Dr. Sunny Nakai, who's also releasing a book. Her book comes out in September. But, you know, I, I think it's beautiful and so important that um, we're all writing and publishing this content. So thank you again for giving of your time, 
through lived experiences for championing diversity. And I look forward to our work in the future. Thank you so much, Dr. Sanchez, for your leadership, for answering the call to build Ben Gap and to grow it in the number of permutations that um, are needed in order for us to support the next generation of academic physicians. Thank you so much.